We're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians again. Last time I uh, taught here, if you guys, we looked at 2 Corinthians. I'm going to go back there, just kind of pick up where I left off. Uh, Jerry asked me if, he, if I would uh, cut before him this morning. And it was uh, a pleasure to do so. I'm going to give a little bit of background again on 2 Corinthians, be a little repetitive for a second. But remember that the, second, the book of 2 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul sent to that church. He did not deliver it in person because he couldn't. And a big part of the letter is, in a sense, Paul defending things he's done from the accusations of people that have come into the Corinthian church and other churches. They've been following Paul around. And they're saying, Paul's not good enough for you. You guys need to listen to us. We are better. We are, Paul calls them the super apostles, tongue in cheek. What Paul is writing, and there's a lot of things he's dealing with in 2 Corinthians, the Corinthian church presented a lot of opportunities for Paul to teach. We sometimes and we think, oh, those Corinthians, what is going on there? And all I can say is, God is at work because in 1 and 2 Corinthians, we have the deep teaching doctrine that has provided life for the church for all these years and that we need to know as well. We could always come back to it. But out of this great adversity that Paul faced and that these Christians faced comes great teaching. 2 Corinthians is a book that is full of verses and parts of verses that you'd put on a t-shirt, that you'd put on your wall, that you put on your coffee cup because they're true and they're profound, but they shouldn't just be approached as phrases. They're all part of this one book. And so what you see in 2 Corinthians is this, it goes back and forth. He'll just lay something out there and you go, wow, my whole world has changed by what you just said, Paul. And then he'll say, and I've got to defend myself again. Okay, he's going back between teaching and defending, uh, saying why he did something or didn't do something, but it's all actually one purpose. And that's the thing I said last time is Paul is a great example, as every Christian should be, is that his doctrine and his love of the Lord and his, his acknowledgement that God's mercy and grace and Christ in him saturates everything he does. So when he writes a letter to the Corinthian church, this is probably at least the fourth letter that was written to the Corinthian church. We call it 2 Corinthians because we only have two letters in our Bible because that's the way God put our Bible together. But in this letter, he's responding to another letter he wrote that we don't know about that he says was a harsh letter. He's saying, I had to tell you some things, and it was so hard for me to tell you these things that I'm worried about how you took it. Have you ever had to write a letter like that or say something like that? Hopefully not have to just shoot off an email like that or a text. God forbid you keep it that short. That's how our world is so messed up nowadays. Our communication is so short that we say things that cannot be said in a few words, but we go ahead and say them, and they can't be understood without that human interaction. And we have fellow believers and family members that are torn apart by tweets and texts. Well, Paul wrote a letter, a long letter, to say, I'm worried about how you took this letter, but I heard it has gone well. Because he heard from his associates, the teaching was received, the discipline of the letter and so now he's writing this, this next letter in 2 Corinthians, and he is still responding, though, to these accusations that are being made, saying, look at Paul, he's poor, he has to work. He couldn't even follow through with what he said. He said he would come to you, and he didn't. Paul's a liar, or maybe he's just wishy-washy. He says one thing and does another. And Paul answers those. But throughout, as he's answering that, he gives us this deep doctrine. So go to chapter 2, that's where we stopped a few weeks back. I want to start there, right at the end. Because what Paul says is, I wanted to come. I very much wanted to come. But he says, first I was going to this other place, and that's where I was planning to go, but then I couldn't even go there. 
And I knew the Lord was leading me there, but then I couldn't go. Well, that had to be of the Lord as well. Let's pick up in chapter 2, in verse 14. So Paul, you, you get this picture now that Paul is talking about. He's going back and forth, and he says, you know, we are captured by Christ. We, have, we are slaves to Christ. And he talks about this triumphal procession. If you think of the Roman armies, that they would conquer, and then they would parade those they conquered. They'd go back to Rome or one of their provincial cities, and they would have a victory parade. And one of the things they would do is they would take the king or the leaders or the prominent people or the tallest ones or the biggest soldiers, and they would parade them, and then they'd kill them. They would show the spoils. They'd say, look how great we are. We'll have our army. We'll have our, they, they will go through the procession. We'll have, you know, I'm sure food was thrown out and bread, and they had incense burning as they passed through. But then they also had these people they'd conquered to shame them. And Paul relates himself to that, and he says, we are in this triumphal procession, but not as the victors so much as we are those who have been conquered by Christ. And it is a good thing, like the Romans. But he says in verse 14, let's start there. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him Everywhere. I'm going to go ahead and just read through the whole chapter, and then we're going to come back and look at some parts. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Continuing in chapter 3, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. I'll stop there. So back to chapter 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God... So Paul has said, I was going here, but I couldn't go here. I had to stay here. I wanted to come to you. I had started. I was planning to come to you, and then I was going to come to you at the end. I was so anxious to see you, Corinthians, but I couldn't. And then he says, and thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So what is Paul? Again, I said he's saturated. Everything he teaches, everything he says, everything he lives, he remembers who God is, the the main reality that Paul is dealing with is that God is real and He has authority over all things. He says, Christ always leads us. 
So here we go. If you think about life and the things that happen in life and the frustrations of having a plan that goes nothing like the way you planned it, are we able to say with Paul, thanks be to God, because Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. The reference to that triumphal procession is, is very strong in that you think, okay, well, how can you be talking about that, Paul? And then he, he begins to explain it some more. Through us spreads the fragrance. Again, through us Christ spreads the fragrance. If you look at the sentence structure here, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul recognizes Christ is at work. Christ is moving him. And Christ is doing this to spread something. And what is he spreading? He's spreading a scent. He's spreading the gospel. He's spreading the knowledge of Christ. Everywhere, it says. Paul has mentioned all these places. He said, I didn't get to go to them. and I didn't get to come back to you. But Christ is leading me where he wants me to go. And by doing it, he's spreading the gospel everywhere. And if we look at Paul's history, he's not really leading him anywhere. Many times he's leaving him in prison where he writes letters that will then go out to the world to spread the knowledge of him everywhere and through Paul's associates and through the churches. So Christ, God in Christ is doing these things. He's leading us and he's spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And then Paul tells us what this fragrance is like. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Let's stop there. So when it comes down to this verse, to this passage, Paul is saying we are an aroma. We are a smell. We are a scent. You, you know what it's like to walk into a room where somebody's cooking something really good. It awakens the senses. We bought this new pot and we threw some onions and potatoes in there and they, they burned just the right way that, oh man, they smell delicious. And it was amazing. It tasted all right, but man, it sure smelled good. I love onions when they're caramelized. When we do men's lunch, I always want to cook the onions. Because you put the butter on there, and it's sitting there kind of bubbling, and then you just dump those onions on there, and it's like, <laughs> you only get that experience if you're cooking onions and you throw them on a hot skillet. And when you got about 40 onions to do it, it's pretty impressive. But this aroma of Christ. But who is this aroma Two, well, it is to the world. It is to those who are being saved and those who are perishing. We'll look at it a little more. But it's also to somebody else. It says right here in the verse. The aroma of Christ to God. So Paul is saying what we are doing, what I am doing and those with me, and further upon that, what we all do is we share the gospel. As we live, is we are the aroma of Christ to God. Who's the smeller here? Well, it's everyone, but who's the most important knows? It's God. As we tell the gospel, the gospel brings glory to Christ. What God did in Christ on the cross was the most glorious, loving, merciful act. Terrible and violent as well. But it was a pleasing thing to God to see the salvation through His Son. And as we spread the gospel, the Lord smells that. Again, this is metaphors. Lord, what the Lord's nose is like, we don't know He's invisible. He's not like us in that way. But the only way we can think about it is smelling that intense smell when you walk in the house. And it's a good smell. 
Or it's a bad smell. You go into the restaurant you've been waiting to go to, and you walk in, and you realize the sewer's backed up. You immediately know something ain't right here. This is the smell of death. <laughs> At least the death of our meal that we were planning to have, it's over. It's maybe go somewhere else rather than the stench. Or you wake up and you smell that in your house. You know it changes things. The smell is an indicator, the reality. So that smell is to God. It brings God pleasure to hear the gospel. God made the story. He planned it. He performed it. People like Pilate and Herod and Judas, though they were acting on their own sinful impulses, they served us through the act of Christ dying on the cross. They all played a part in that. And without that, we would have no hope. So the gospel is a pleasing smell to God, but also among those who are being saved. When we smell the good thing, we recognize the good reality. And to those who are perishing. So this is where it gets interesting. And there's a little bit, if you look at verse 15 and 16, it goes, the format is he talks about those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And then he tells us, about those perishing, and he finishes telling us about those saved. To one, those perishing, the fragrance from death to death. So what is death to death? Is it just, some people would say, well, he's just saying death, death to death. I'm trying to cover all death. But I think what he's saying is to the dead, to those who are spiritually dead, they're already dead. But they will be forever dead. The gospel says that without Christ, there is no salvation. You pay the penalty for your sin eternally. That's death. So if I don't know Christ, I'm spiritually dead. That's my current death. And the gospel says, no salvation outside of Christ. If you hear the gospel and you say, no, thank you, eternal death is the other end, which is without end. Death to death. But to those, to the others... Those who are being saved, it's a fragrance from life to life. So if, if the analogy of the spiritually dead to eternal death is what the gospel says, what it says to the life to life means to those who are already indwelled by the Spirit, the gospel is, a, is the smell of life eternal. Now, all of us were in that first group. And we didn't just smell the gospel and say, today, you know, that smelled like death up until today, and suddenly I like the smell of it. I think I'll get saved. That's not what this passage relates, and that's not what the Bible teaches. It took a change. God has to make you alive to that smell. That smell changes because God makes your nose smell it spiritually as life. So it's the Spirit that brings life. So then he says, what he's talking about here is is very consequential. He's talking about death, eternal death, eternal damnation, eternal life. And he says, rightly, who is sufficient for these things? What a great question. Let's talk about smelling again. A lot of people take this verse, and one of the hardest things in the Christian life, and Paul deals with this in every letter, is the idea that the Christian life is about being good. And that's what the Judaizers were saying. That's what a lot of the super apostles were coming and saying. They're saying, not only do you need to trust Christ as your Savior, but you've got to follow the law. You've got to be good to be saved. 
dot every I, cross every T. That's how it worked. Because that's what the Jews believed. That's what they, their law said. It's to be perfect. Could not be perfect, so God instituted a system of sacrifices for them, which would be culminate in Christ. It's not about smelling good. There are plenty of really good lost people. If you've taught your children, or you've been taught, that lost people are just bad people, that's not true. We know lots of good people who are lost. They do good things. They might do better things than we do. C.S. Lewis tells a great story. Who's ever read Mere Christianity? The, you know, it's a great book. Recommend it. It's got some hard parts. If you read it and you're confused, talk to me. I won't straighten it out, but I'd love to talk to you about the book. I love to read C.S. Lewis. He makes me think. Mere Christianity has a chapter about two people, and I'm going to read you a little piece of it because I, it'll be better if I do that than forget it and just try to mess it up. But He talks about two people. He talks about a woman who's, who's come to Christ later in life, and she's kind of cantankerous. The way he describes her, she doesn't sound like a very nice person, but she is a Christian. And then he talks about a man who's a really good guy, but he's not a Christian. Maybe he will become one, but he's not. And, and he calls the lady Ms. Bates, and the man is Dick Firkin. That's his name. He makes these up. And so I'll just read this short passage. I think it says it well about good people. Christian Miss Bates may have an unkinder tongue than unbelieving Dick Firkin. That by itself does not tell us whether Christianity works. The question is what Miss Bates' tongue would be like if she was not a Christian and what Mr. Firkin's would be like if he became one. Miss Bates and Mr. Firkin, as a result of natural causes and early upbringing, have certain temperaments. Christianity professes to put both temperaments under new management if they will allow it to do so. What you have a right to ask is whether that management, if allowed to take over, improves the concern. Everyone knows that what is being managed in Dick Firkin's case is much nicer than what is being managed in Miss Bates' case. That's not the point. To judge the management of a factory, you must consider not only the output, but the plant. Don't misunderstand me. Of course God regards a nasty nature as a bad and deplorable thing. And of course He regards a nice nature as a good thing, good like bread or sunshine or water. But these are good things which He gives and we receive. He created Dick's sound nerves and good digestion, and there is plenty more where that came from. This great sentence. It cost God nothing, so far as we know, to make nice things. But to convert rebellious wills cost His crucifixion. So we're not talking about being so good that you smell good. If you're not saved, you don't smell good to God. Because he sees your sin. And, and your life is not the sweet smell of the gospel. This is important because it's a, very easy for us to just think the gospel is about being good, not being bad. So he says, who is sufficient for these things? I, I've watched a friend go through a seminary and graduation. And then their big chapel they have on the, the wall behind, as I think is appropriate, uh, you know, go out into all the world. Matthew 28 on there is their slogan. And I think that's a great slogan, but what I think might be a better slogan for seminary people or anybody is who is sufficient for these things. That's what Paul said. Paul's the best seminary graduate of all time. He was taught by Jesus himself. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? This is life and death we're talking about, the gospel. Who is sufficient? 
This is how people are reached for eternity, is through the gospel, through this fragrance. And it's not a fragrance as uh, many people think. I think it's um, St. Francis of Sissi is, is uh, given the quote, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Well, that's a great sentiment, but it's not really good. You've got to use words to preach the gospel. I think God gave us this. That, that means something. We can't just act it out. We should. We should be seen as people as different. Okay, verse 17. Because for we are not, he goes now into a defense again, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Like, let me put the commas in the right places here. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. So he's saying, again, these people that have come in, they're using... Christ, they're using the gospel as a means to an end, and that end is money. They're peddlers. They're selling God's word, and people do that today. People do it for money. People do it for influence. People do it for friendship. Sometimes people do it to offend people. Not at the offense of the gospel, but just to, because they're mad, and they think, well, I can use the gospel as a weapon because it makes people mad, and it does make a lot of people mad. He says, we're not that. He's defending himself again. He goes, as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, and this is important, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Okay, so, so Paul now has said, we are the essence, we are the smell to God, to those who are perishing, to those who are, are living. But he also says, we preach Christ in the sight of of God. We're commissioned by God in the sight of God. Do you remember daily? It's hard and it is, I think it's a good thing to remember. We live in the sight of God. When we got up this morning, the things we thought, the things in our heart, the things we did, and maybe, maybe Sunday's a good day to look at us. Maybe we're a little better today. But all we do and think and say is in the sight of God, in the presence of God. He is right here. He's right here. It's in the sight of God, where nothing is hidden from Him. Go on to the next. We speak in Christ. Chapter 3. In furthering this defense, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So one of the things that people would do in these churches and in that time in the culture was they would go somewhere and they would bring a letter of recommendation. So somebody you knew this person would come to you and they would have a letter that would say, Bill can attest that I'm trustworthy, that I'm preaching the same gospel that Bill, that Bill shared with you. Or, just like you do letters of recommendation for business, college, or job, you know, for different things. This is what would happen. And you see this in the Bible. What does Paul say in the beginning and the end of many of his letters? Greet so-and-so as a brother. He's making letters of recommendation. He goes, here is Paul. I'm writing this letter. I'm with so-and-so and so-and-so, or so-and-so is bringing you this letter. That is, in essence, a letter of recommendation. He's saying, rely on these people. I trust them. You trust them. So he says, do we have to commend ourselves? Do I have to keep saying why you should listen to me? He goes, do I need letters of recommendation to you or from you? And this is a great, he turns this, it's so great, verse 2. You yourselves or our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Verse 3, and you show that you are a letter 
from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Stop there. So he says, do I need a letter of recommendation? Here's my letter of recommendation. You. This church, Corinth, is because Christ is written on your hearts, and I got to deliver it. The letter was from Christ. The Spirit did the writing, and I just helped deliver it. I delivered the gospel. Christ is on your heart, and the Spirit wrote it on there, and he uses the example of of stone. So what stones is he talking about? Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. It says there at the end. What are the tablets of stone? The Ten Commandments. When Moses got the Ten Commandments, what did they come on? It's, it's right in the movie. That part of it's right. He walks down on stone tablets. God's hand. God write the law on stone. And he says, Christ is written on your hearts by the Spirit. Just like God wrote on those stones, he's written on your hearts indelibly. Indelible. It can't be erased. You, you, you fill out official documents that says use an indelible pen. These are great words. We sing them in, in songs sometimes, but we don't use them very often anymore. So the term like indelible grace, we read that sometimes. Like, well, what does indelible mean? You think? You, you, most of us in here have signed documents with an indelible pen. That means it can't be erased. Somebody can't go in there and take your name off, put somebody else's on there. God writes indelible on in our hearts. It cannot be erased. The spirit of the living God used ink, spiritual ink. But Paul had to deliver the gospel. So some people say, well, if God is saving people, if, if God wrote my name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, then why do I have to have the gospel? The means of that is through the gospel. That letter is delivered by Paul. That lever, letter is delivered in here. That letter is delivered by us when we witness to people. God writes on their hearts. We can't do that. I can explain this. As, I could quote Paul saying the same thing and others in the Bible say, we could teach perfect but God has to do the writing on your heart. But I deliver the letter. And he goes, and you are the letter. You're the recommendation. You wouldn't exist without the power of Christ, without the spirit of the living God, and without the gospel that I delivered, or that us. He keeps saying us because he's including the others with him. It's written on their hearts. Psalm 119.11, let's, let's flip to some. Uh, we've got those in the back. As we get to this last section here, we think of the Psalms, the Psalms love the law. The psalmist writes at length in verse 11 of, of Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The whole Psalm 119, many of the Psalms are just stating how wonderful God's law is. And we're about to get to the section, we read it earlier, where Paul starts to say the law, the letter in stone is death. You start to think, okay, well, what is it, Paul? Do you not agree with the psalmist? He said, the law is life. It's like water. I, I'm panting for the water like the deer. Your words. So when you, when in Scripture, often when it says the law, when it says the letter, you've got to read the context, you've got to read further out. It's often just referring to Scripture, God's revealed Word. Sometimes it's specifically talking about the Ten Commandments or the Levitical law. But what he's saying is that no matter what the law says, until it is written on your heart, it's death. It does you no good. It needs to be on your heart. Ezekiel 36. 
says, verse 26. Well, let's start in 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In Ezekiel 11, it says much the same thing, but let's read that. The book of Hebrews addresses a lot of this as well. We just went through that in here. And I, verse 19, chapter 11, Ezekiel, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. There is no conflict, but the law without Christ is death. Why? Because nobody can fulfill the law except Christ. And so we need to be in the one who fulfilled the law for the law not to be death. Because what the law points to is grace and mercy and and right. But without Christ, it cannot be fulfilled and it is death. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Now he answers the question he asked just a little bit ago. He says, who is sufficient for these things? He says, not us. We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. So he looks out, he says, do I need a letter of recommendation? You're my letter of recommendation. But that's not sufficient. Only God is sufficient. He looks up to God. His vertical confidence is greater than that that goes out. And Paul has reason for confidence. He's done a lot. But he says, we have no sufficiency in ourselves. And the same goes for us. Our only sufficiency is from God. And then he he continues, it's not a period there. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here, what can that mean? If the law of the Psalms of the Old Testament is a good thing, then how can it kill? Well, it does. And let me give you two, two reasons. The one is the law is external, but God's Spirit is internal. It completes what could not be finished. It has to be all of us, our spirit. The law written on stone, we could not do that. It had to be completed in Christ. So there's a couple of ways we can look at ourselves and evaluate ourselves in this. One is, if I know the law, the law has been revealed and the law has a purpose. The law brings us to Christ and it brings everyone to Christ. And many people say, I don't care. I don't believe. I don't need Christ. I don't buy all that. The law kills. If you treat the law that way, the law kills. You will, you, it will be death to death when you hear the gospel because the law kills. But not just that. It's easy for us in church to look at people and say, well, that's the people outside, obviously. We need to go find them and teach them the gospel. Yes, we do. But sometimes we need to hear the gospel because it's often pride in our hearts that says, I fulfilled the law ever since I was a little child. Maybe I did a few little things when I was bad. I don't even remember. Well, I'm a good person. 
I do good things. I give a lot to the church. I serve in 14 ministries. I trust Christ, and I'm good at the law. If you think you have attained on your own, the law kills because you are not trusting in Christ. You're trusting in yourself. Paul says, are we sufficient for anything? No. Our sufficiency is from God. So, both kill. A pride that denies Christ or a pride that lifts one up, even if it's for good spiritual things. Both of those attitudes are killers. He goes in verse 7. Now the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? We go to Exodus, we can look at this story, but we'll close here in just a minute. When Moses got the tablets and he met with God, when, when he was at the burning bush, he was by himself. But when he went to the tablets, he came down, and who was there? Well, all of Israel was there. And what were they doing? They are doing some bad things. They were, they were impatient. They were following in what they'd learned in Egypt. And they were about to move into Canaan, and they would end up doing the same thing there. But Moses comes down, and his face glows. This is a little part of the Bible I don't remember as a child spending much time learning about, but Moses had a glowing face. Did you know that? Like, you turn the lights off, and you've got the sneakers, with the ref- and they glow, and you're like, wow. And then you put them up the light, and they get brighter. Moses' face had been exposed to the glory of God so much that it just glowed. Now, I don't know if it was all the time. It's mentioned a few times. Paul mentions it here. So I don't know if, if Moses was going around like a light bulb all the time. But Moses was different than us in that way, and that he glowed. Or at least his face glowed. And it said in Exodus that it scared them. We should be scared. It'd be like those alien reports we're hearing, you know. The, and then I knew this was going to be the case. So the Army, Navy says, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about those alien reports we've got. And they come back and say, well, we don't know what they are, but we don't think they're aliens. Unless you believe they are, and they might be. I do believe there's other things out in the world. The Bible teaches us that there is more than just us. Angelic beings, heavenly hosts of the billions with a little green orbs, I don't know. But if somebody came in here, if Jeff Franklin walked in here and his face was glowing, not just red, we'd be like, whoa, what's going on? And I'm thinking this is an intense glow. He's been in the glory of God, which kills people. He put a veil over his face because it was too much. Paul uses this example to say, If what Moses had been exposed to was so glorious, yet coming to an end, this this covenant of the law was not the end. The covenant of grace in Christ through the Spirit, that is the, the end. And it is more glorious than that. It's hard for us to comprehend how glorious it is. We tend to take it lightly. But who is sufficient for such things? The implied answer to that is no one. But the real answer is is that we are in Christ. We're sufficient. That we have a job to do, and that's to share the gospel. To those who are perishing, it is death. And to those who are being saved, it is life. It is something we must do. There's glory in it. We'll stop there and pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for sharing your gospel with us. Thank you that when we heard this gospel for the first time or the hundredth time that you put a new heart in us and you wrote 
through your Spirit, the Gospel on our hearts, Lord. Let us not forget the glorious thing that is the Gospel. So powerful that it outshines Moses' face. Lord, help us to recognize that we are to share that Gospel, to share that smell to those who are perishing, to those who are living, and most of all, to you, as we thank you for what you've done. Help us to do that now as we sing, as we pray, as we hear your word, that we would glorify you in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our actions, with our mouths aloud, in our conversations, and as we go into this week. In Jesus' name, amen.